0: Fire and Bones Podcast, a conversation between two pastors over the text we are preaching this week. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama.
1: And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas.
0: Follow the podcast, rate it, most of all, share this podcast with a pastor you know might benefit from it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode.
1: That's what what we were good at, Michael, freestyling.
0: That is, is, that's it. If I
1: could say anything that I think Michael Crosswhite is good at, freestyle. (laughs) If if, if I dropped a beat right now, could you you rhyme three
0: sentences in a row? We're talking Eminem level freestyling here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) right, right. Yeah, oh man, would I be shocked to hear that come out of your mouth. Oh my goodness. I
0: guarantee you, I I am so awful, it would start with My Name Is, which you know
1: is the beginning (laughs) of every terrible freestyle. (laughs) I used to have DC Talk songs, rap songs memorized. I could probably, between Garth Brooks' Cracked Rearview Mirror by Hooting the Blowfish and DC Talk... Those are my 90s albums I could probably sing along with right now.
0: Everyone knows that I'm a Jesus freak. I mean, but what will they say when they find out? Bro, I don't, I don't know if that's how it goes. Something. Doesn't it? Isn't that the what, words? I think I just quoted it. I'm pretty sure. That's how it goes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. What
1: will people say when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? That's That's it. how it goes. That's it.
0: Yeah, that's it. Can we get judges? Oh, can we get? My
1: goodness! Oh my goodness! You
0: know how how will people uh, react when they discover stop, that I stop, love Jesus?
1: Stop! Stop! Isn't that you, how it goes? Oh man! Stop! You got to stop! This <laughs> is this is embarrassing. Let's, let's quit. <laughs> my kids love Jesus Freak.
0: By Do the way, really? the song.
1: Oh yeah! It's who can not? How can you not like that song? Yeah, it's good. It's isn't
0: great. It, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy that that I was driving down the road the other day? We were driving to baseball practice, and I, I was thinking to myself, um, I want to play something that's like rock, but that's like got an, an upbeat kind of rhythm to it. But mm-hmm. I can't think of anything that's good that's Christian. <laughs> okay, oh, <laughs> that, this I would, is... that I would that I would Let be me help embarrassed me. by. <laughs>
1: Okay. okay. So,
0: okay. I, okay. I settled on Jimi Hendrix. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My kids were like, "What is great, this? Great. That's, that's I was like, great. all on Watchtower, man.
1: You're a great dad. You're, you're doing great. You're doing great. I'm hopefully, hopefully this is not the first time Andrea learns that's the, This is where the kids have been learning Jimi Hendrix quotes all along. It this was with you in the van. This is not going to be published. From, from baseball practice. <laughs> yeah, this is not going to be published. P.O.D., Pable on Death. You know that band? Oh, good grief, P.O.D. I mean, we are dating ourselves here, man. This is how old people talk, right? <laughs> what? Are are we old? Yeah, why I know. How about Petra? Is Petra still
0: alive? Oh, are, are, are they still? alive? No way. I Can't be. <laughs> I mean,
1: they're petrified, you mean? Oh, okay. Wow. Dad joke. Wow. Wow. I can't believe you just said that. Wow. Uh. <laughs> you need, they were old when I went to see them at East Texas Baptist University in the 90s. Oh, uh, my word. So, yeah. You and I were talking about a, a book this morning and a, a subject specifically, the Word of God in the church. And <clears throat> I don't know how we transition from music to that, but um, the Word of God being the central acting, dividing, gathering, life giving force. In the church through which God and His Spirit works, would you think it's safe to say that's that's an underappreciated doctrine—the centrality of the Word. Yes, uh, in, I you, would... in your own, without, without <laughs> throwing your own church under the bus or any church you know, do you, do you think that that's not just like the circles out there, but our churches? Oh, and no. our I, I conventions don't, and like us. It would be, you know, it, well, first of all, it would be hypocritical of me
0: to throw anybody else under the bus for something like that, but because I can identify it in my own heart that I, I would consider myself hmm. or I would like to consider myself as a, a gospel-centered preacher. So someone who values the Word of God, who wants to exegete the text, wants to lay it out, I want my points to be that which the author of the text is actually making and not kind of read things into it. I want to do all of those things. And I would still say that I am so tempted and fall prey to uh, taking the church or the preaching event or whatever and making it not about the word, but making it about either me or making it about performance or making it about a number of other things. And I, I think the chief fears in my ministry have always been things that were ancillary to what a church really is. Mm. Um, I mean, if you think about it, like all the things that give me panic attacks or make me worry are things that uh, are... are not what a pastor
1: or a preacher should even be worried about. So, can I, I'm, here, I'm going to do something. And this, for anybody who happens to be listening to this, this might be our last podcast, based on what <laughs> I'm about to bring up here. Um, but seriously, there's, there's a moment, and don't shoot me for bringing this up. I think this will be helpful for your church to hear. There's a moment in your first year or so when you were thinking about what how you should style or move the pulpit should you preach from a chair and a table should you sit down on a bench or you know on a a stool should you keep the pulpit do you do you remember this i do i'm and super embarrassed well, you know, but i do <laughs> <laughs> well i i bring it up because i think it's it's like you said it's so it's representative of, I think, every pastor's struggle. The, f- the feeling of frustration that I feel like I'm preaching the Word, I'm ministering to people alongside the Word best I can, and sometimes I feel like it's just not hitting home. And it's not doing what I think it's supposed to do in the time that I think it's supposed to do, bearing the fruit that I think it's supposed to bear. Um, and so there's insecurities wrapped up in there uh... for the pastor himself uh... there's doubts about god's word wrapped up in that um, but that's a I i think it's a helpful example of you thinking wrestling through like maybe i should change up the furniture on the stage to to get more engagement from the church and i don't think that was necessarily a launch into seeker sensitivism if that's a word, but you're just a question going, I want to do whatever I can to reach people. Would this be, do you remember that? You said you did. What do you remember? Well, that's years ago.
0: There, there was, it wasn't a, what I was thinking through was not a, you know, a permanent change or an approach to preaching or anything like that. But it was a particular moment where there was some applicational things that I really wanted to get to that pertain to our church and where our church was at in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, thinking, maybe this would be better served if, if at the end of the sermon, when it came to like an applicational moment that I just, uh, or, or even for the whole sermon that I just dispensed with the pulpit and just talked to the people, like removed any obstacle between me and them that might be visual and really just got on the level.
1: This will make the word work more. It was maybe our family should uh, move from the kitchen table to the living room so that we can have a talk, that that kind of change. Right. Yeah, I, I, I get that. That, that was kind of the, the impetus of it. And I think,
0: I, I, I you know, my, look, my heart is a fickle beast. And, mm-hmm. you know, at any moment is prone to dive off into uh, things that are not word centered. But right. I think in that moment, I wasn't necessarily thinking, let's remove the word from the equation. But oh, yeah, in, in in the study of the word during the week,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I felt like this so h- hits exactly where our church is at the moment. Which, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, thinking back on it, I don't even remember what that moment was. But I remember thinking <laughs> it was so thinking,
1: pivotal. It yeah. was so pivotal
0: that <laughs> it, two years later it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Uh, you know. But but I remember thinking um that it, it might serve our church better if they didn't understand this moment to be and here's the application of this passage it means this but actually right. going look guys let me just level with you this yeah. is exactly where we are and yeah. and so i but but i it's still even though i even though i would say that that may not necessarily be a moment in my ministry here or anywhere that I feel like was pulling away from the word, um, and I would probably mm-hmm. use other examples to better, you know, yeah. uh, emphasize that in my own ministry. I, I still think uh, it serves as a decent example
1: because um, it, it sounds what to I me would, like you re, you recognize my people don't need a sermon; they need a pastor, and so I don't want to I don't want to be too preachy. I want to make sure that they know me as pastor. I, I yeah. feel like that's the that's kind of what you realized, and I, and I think that's that's helpful. But you, but you were saying, you can see how that is maybe uh, something else before I interrupt.
0: Well, well yeah, I, I there is a uh a, I, I told whenever I came here, um, typically, and I, I'm I'm sure everybody's familiar with the process a person goes through to come to a church and to be hired there, which, you know, involves this kind of selection committee or, or or whatever, uh, kind of, some sort of committee that goes and finds pastors and interviews them and has them in town and talks to them and shows them the church and those kinds of things. And, um, I, during that, that whole investigative process, when we're both kind of trying to figure each other out, I sat down at the table with the, the committee and the pastoral search committee. And I, and I said, uh, listen, my heartbeat, my true belief is that the word does the work. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that a, a pastor comes in, And where there is dissension, disagreement, fighting, bickering, division, all sorts of things that could be going on in any moment in a church, the pastor comes in and preaches as near as he can the heart of the text of the word of God. Mm -hmm. And he lays that text bare before Mm -hmm. the congregation and he gives applications that if Matthew or whomever the writer might have been in any book uh, were here, he would say, yes, that's the reason I included that story. Or yes, Mm -hmm. that is what I was trying to say here, and that's how it would apply to this congregation. And I think if a pastor does that, the Word of God, because of its nature— has the ability to penetrate the exterior of the heart of the children of God and mm. change them to be radically different so that they are united in faith rather than divided by a mm-hmm. number of other things. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the goal. And so it, more than anything I do, more than any you know podium I remove or put in, or more than any um, design of the stage or anything like that, it's the, the Word that is actually operating in the hearts of God's children to mold so, them and shape them into who He wants them to be.
1: So in, in that moment, when you, <clears throat> just as an example, you, you weren't um, outright rejecting the sufficiency of Scripture in the pulpit. But you were considering maybe a different setting would be helpful for in some way. Do you do you, do you think and feel in your experience that that's a that can be a really dangerous um, space to be in, where you begin to think, well, this is not really rejecting the word, this is just doing this other thing that I want to do, and what you end up doing is, even if on accident, um, kind of teaching people that by doing things this new way that um that everything will be will I be more passionate you you'll hear better uh, this will affect your life more we'll be more excited do you feel like that is a an easy road to get on even in a question of legitimate plans and decision making i think it's a
0: drug and mm. we I, I i'm convinced that I, I can't really speak to any any uh, pastor, I guess, or church outside of the American culture, American context, because it's kind of the only one that I really know. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it is a drug that probably to one degree or another, every pastor in America is addicted to.
1: And what do you, what do you mean by that? We, we you just told me I was addicted to something. So yeah. I want to, I want to, I'd like to know what that is. Well, I think the the inclination,
0: the love in our heart is Is probably and I I I say every pastor and I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but um, there's a a love or an inclination in our heart that is driven towards how am I doing? What do people think of me? And am I maintaining my reputation? Um, Am I attracting new people? What is that person who's visiting? What do they really think about what's being done right now? in our Mm -hmm. in our church service uh am i engaging to a younger audience uh what happens if our church is growing older not younger um Mm -hmm. you know what what about you know why is it that uh we do all these catchy things and our website isn't getting more Mm -hmm. traffic than it than it was Mm -hmm. what are the numbers on my podcast and Mm -hmm. how 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 many people are they reaching um Mm -hmm. how do i see those kinds of metrics and we we start to think about all these other other
1: things. But wouldn't you, and would you we grow wouldn't concerned you put with this? Wouldn't you put that in the category of temptation? Um, I'm thinking about Paul in Romans 7. In the inner man, I delight in the law of God, uh, but I see among my members uh, the this other law in my flesh. So the, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. That there is inside me as a Christian. A renewed desire to do something that I can't even I couldn't get rid of if I tried the desire to do God's will walk with him follow him please him but I'm I'm tempted to feel these things and and doubt about my ministry creeps in and therefore I'm tempted to think this way but my inclination is kind of like but when it really comes down to it a, a, a true Christian and a true faithful pastor the inclination would be, but I just, I can't do that. I, I just, I'm just going to preach the word. Yeah, who doesn't want to know how they're doing? Yeah, who doesn't want to know how they're doing? Every yeah. pastor
0: that stands up in the pulpit wants to understand or know, does is what I'm doing pleasing to God? Is it is it bearing fruit in the life of the hearer that is listening to this sermon? what is the mm-hmm. result of this message that i've worked all week to craft write down on paper maybe and preach to an audience what effect is it really having and so mm-hmm. i think that the part where it's sort of a drug for us and an addiction or maybe as you put it a temptation which is also a good a good way of looking at it i think is it gives me some sort of tangible marker that i can look at and perhaps evaluate how i'm doing and my point is that it's a poor evaluator of how you're actually doing. Mm, it yeah, doesn't that's, actually that's indicate, it doesn't indicate how you're doing. In fact, I, I am so, I, I, I love John 6. It's probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And, and one of mm. the reasons is because Jesus starts off at the beginning feeding the 5,000 and gained... And and, and by the way, that's 5,000 uh, heads of families that are represented. That's not 5,000 mm-hmm. people. That's 5,000 mm-hmm. heads of families. And then who knows how many people it really was, exponentially more than that. And he starts off with this great crowd. They're following him as he crosses the the Sea of Galilee. They follow him to the wilderness on the other side. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter the only ones that are left are the 12 and even one of them is a traitor mm-hmm. so he starts off with this massive crowd and by the end he ends up with 11 and it's mm-hmm. all at his preaching and so so the what i'm saying for the, the the person who who wants to be word-centered and are and and desires a church that is word-centered there are no metrics that are tangible that are that are visible like that that are going to give you a marker on the fruit of your ministry. In fact, many may walk away. Many mm-hmm. may disappear at the preaching mm-hmm. of the word.
1: Now, people yeah.
0: could also disappear because you're a jerk. Right? Yeah.
1: I, mean, I, I do think you can say so much as there is a is a church that is growing in faith around the preaching of the word. Then you can say, "I think not even myself take myself out of the equation, but the preaching of the word is having that effect by helping that." Yeah. But the fruitlessness or potential leaving uh, because of your preaching doesn't necessarily mean that you're being unfaithful. Right. Uh, like you said, John six, Jesus preach the truth. People left. They couldn't They couldn't understand it, and, and they couldn't stand it. Um, so I, th- I think we should quote that. They couldn't understand it, and they couldn't stand it. Yeah. Does that work? Is that? Yeah. I don't know. Somebody yeah. probably said that before. It's probably in a DC Talk song somewhere. That, um,
0: <laughs> Some 6th century monk came up with it way before you did, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. In Latin, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so I think... What we're talking about this morning then is just how the word of God, which wait wait a second, I want to go back. What'd you what'd you do about your pulpit? What did you do? What'd you decide?
0: I ended up just just preaching a sermon and Hmm. and demonstrating through the the text. why I feel like this application to our church is justified and warranted by mm-hmm. the text that's sitting in front of us. Mm-hmm. That if Jesus, like like to the churches in Revelation, were were to say to the angel of the church at Emmanuel, right, um, mm-hmm. that this is what he would say about mm-hmm. this particular passage of scripture, mm-hmm. and how it do you feel how like it applies made, to our situation? Feel like you would do the same thing again. One hundred percent. I was right to say, yeah. and 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 wouldn't when, and wouldn't even hesitate. I think that's that's the the thing is like, I, I think every pastor comes into a situation, comes into a church where there's going to be some measure of infighting. There's going to be some measure of issues that are going on. That's that's called church, that's called ministry, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. going back as far as the first century, every church has their issues. First bad is Corinth. Yep. Yeah, sure. I mean, every single one of them has an issue, and every pastor is coming into that in some regard, and there is Mm -hmm. a temptation, I think, more than anything, to look at that problem and magnify it and go, well, here's how to fix it. And you mm. apply these mm-hmm. certain external you know, measures and controls, and it fixes that particular issue. And I think the Bible and the biblical writers, Jesus himself, is constantly calling us back to the word of God and saying, the word shapes the people. Trust mm-hmm. the word. Preach it yeah. faithfully. God will shape his people. Don't yeah. worry too much. I mean, obviously, the external problems they need to be managed and they they need to be addressed and through Abs- counseling yeah. and all kinds of yeah. different things like that that pastors do, and that we you and I do every week with people. But um, but the the gospel, the word of God, will shape his people in over the long haul. And so for me, um, you know, the appropriate measures. That, that a pastor should be looking at and that give me so much encouragement now, you know, almost four years into pastoring here is, you know, when I sit down at the table with somebody and they say, you know, this sin issue has become to the forefront of my mind and I have to get rid of it. it ha- I have to kill it because it's destroying my marriage or it's destroying me or it's destroying my kids. To me, I look at that and I say that is the preaching of the word of God at work. It's left my mouth. It's gone into the ears of his children. It has penetrated into the heart. It has identified areas where they, they are in sin. It has brought to mind repentance. And now they're realizing, they're coming to grips with what it means to follow Jesus. Only the word of God can do that. You can't mm-hmm. do that as a pastor. Quit. Only so, the word so of quit. God can do
1: that. Some quick questions. When you preach, do you move back and forth around the pulpit, or do you stand right there? I stand right there. Are I don't you, think it's a sin you, to move, but I, I just... No, I'm not saying that. I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah. Do you wave your hands, point to the sky, dab, anything like that when you're preaching? <laughs> um,
0: I occasionally break into a dance, but, you know, that's... Okay, <laughs>
1: okay. No. Okay, <laughs> um, you freestyle, I, you dance. I mean, you're wow. This cool I church. Would say,
0: I think people would tell you if people that listen to me would probably tell you, I uh, I, I yell a lot, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I think that's what they would say. And they would probably also say that I I, I could probably uh, land a Boeing seven fifty seven with the way
1: I move my arms, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but i don't i think in 10 years i've never moved out from behind the pulpit while preaching once if i did people thought probably would think i was about to pass out and they're trying to catch me <laughs> as i moved to the side yeah. he, he's he's clearly falling <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I, it, you know
0: i don't never do that <laughs> for me for me like i think that the uh, if I, you know, I manuscript it almost everything, and if I moved out from behind the pulpit to kind of gain this sort of effect, like what we we're talking about, I think it would lose its power when I forgot what I was going to say. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I stay on the pulpit because that's where my manuscript is. Yeah. Um, now I say I would, that, you know, we we've we actually during the whole COVID thing, we had to move the pulpit out of the way and do a music stand just because everything's on camera. Now mm-hmm. and like yeah. if the pulpit's up there, you can't sure. see half the people that are on the stage, and so the once the video feed cuts out, we'll we'll bring the pulpit
1: back. But so you're one for, of you're one of those pastors that just lets COVID just dictate whatever you're going to do in your church. I mean, I yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, in college, I think my church would probably be shocked to know that for a few years I was on a speech uh, scholarship. I competed on a speech team in uh, my first year and a half at a junior college and that helped me pay for school. Um, I break those rules that I learned there every week. I lean on the pulpit, I put my hands in my pocket, I look down at my notes a lot, I, 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 could, I could go on. My, my, my teacher, can't remember her name right now, sorry, but she would be ashamed. <laughs> to see me doing what I do at the pulpit every week. But I, for me, I don't worry about that too much. And for brothers who do, uh, who are more eloquent, more controlled, uh, more visually helpful when they preach, praise God. Um, I just don't worry about that. And maybe this is a, a foolishness of my own, I'll admit it. But I just think that the word Preached, and we talked about this weeks ago. The word preached from a man on fire. No one's—I don't think—going to go. Gosh, it was so weird that he had his hand in his pocket. Um, if the word is preached and the spirit is working uh, in anyone's heart who's who's listening, and so that 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 ministry really becomes the first place. That we do that in all the church, though. Like you said, we, when you're counseling, it's about the word. What do deacons do? It's about the. It comes from the word. Uh, staff meeting. What are we talking about? The the word in our ministry. It's it's a word. It's a word. Organization. we everything we do is is in and from the word. And I, the to put it on a doctrinal term, the word would be what, what's called sufficient the sufficiency of scripture it is everything it is absolutely sufficient for what the church needs in order to be faithful to the church to to the Lord and um, that comes from 2nd Timothy 316 uh, where Paul tells Timothy Uh, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for teaching and training in righteousness, that you may be adequately equipped for every good work. And what Paul is saying there is everything you need to be equipped to do all the good works God's created you to do, the Word, the breathed Word of God can correct and reprove to every single one of those. There's nothing that God has asked the church to do. The word doesn't inform us, help us, empower us, train us to do. And what's interesting about that is that there are so many
0: things that we do that are beyond the boundaries of scripture. And we like what do do you have in mind? Well, I mean, there's so many ways that we organize churches, you know, church polity and church governance that like we like me and you or like we like churches in the west or like church churches in the west yeah, yeah. that that we do because we know by experience that's how they've been done in the past
1: mm.
0: or so many expectations that we might have for ministers uh you know that that we have because this is what we've always come to know is what a pastor does, or we've always come to know this is how a church should be governed or run or whatever. Um, you know, there's so many things like that that are are and, and are difficult for us to change because we consider we don't consider the word to really speak to those issues whatsoever. Well, the church, I mean, I mean, come on, we can we can really do, you know, whatever we want in this regard, how we baptize, when we baptize, all those kinds of things. I mean, it could be a a myriad of issues that any one church is is dealing with, but um, much of it is governed out of experience and done out of experience, expectations that we have for a church that we don't get from Scripture. We just get from culture. And they, they tell us this is, but, but when you come in and you say, you know, the word actually speaks to how a church should be run. The word actually speaks to the job description of of what a pastor is, is to do to train and equip the saints for the work of ministry. Um, I mean, how many, how many times have you, have you heard or experienced or kind of felt in either business meetings or deacon meetings or whatever, where the expectation is that the pastor is the one that goes and shares the gospel. I literally have in a job description for a pastor uh, where the job the job description is that he will be the one that shares the gospel. and and you, at some point you have to kind of go, wait a second, the word actually says, I mean, yes, he should do the work of an evangelist. absolutely. But the word says that he's training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry of which sharing the gospel is a part. So that at least tells us the fact that he's doing the work of an evangelist and he's training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry that the whole church are the ones that share the gospel. Not one individual paid minister, you know. And so so many of those things that we do are governed by experience and we expect them in a church and we never we don't stop to ask, wait a second, does the word actually speak to this? And so the, the purpose of like preaching from a, a word-centered position, uh, the purpose of counseling in your office by bringing in the word, this is what the word says about this, is reminding your people that everything we need to govern our church, to operate as Christians, to grow, to be corrected, everything we need is right here in the word. And that's not to say you can't do anything. That's not, that you know isn't you know the word doesn't really probably speak too much
1: to potlucks. It Doesn't mean you can't do a potluck. But, well, a- amen. We bet I think <laughs> potlucks are in the Bible somewhere. They've got to be. They're so yeah, good. But, but I do think there is
0: a there there is a general spirit of the congregation that is coming together in the bonds of unity, and that's the purpose of those potlucks that we do. Right. Even, so even if potlucks
1: aren't in the Bible, we're going to keep doing them at our church. Got,
0: we got, we got. I'm, just, I'm just saying. I refuse to be convicted. <laughs> 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 I, Bring something, on the green bean casserole.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll eat that all year round. The I think it's interesting, too. One of the reasons I think that might happen in churches, even today and has in the, in the past, is uh, not not really because of a disbelief about the sufficiency of Scripture to order and train the church, right? It's not a rejection of that. It seems, and, and write this down, I think this is a great thing to talk about another day more fully, is that we misunderstand what the church is. Mm-hmm. And, and we find things out in the world that work. And function a certain way and do a good service in business world or in our family growing up or or somewhere like that and we think we can just transfer it in if it worked there it will work here and that that the church is like all other organizations so all other principles will apply when actually the church is a different, fundamentally different kind of organization, a whole new politic, kingdom of people that operates under the direction of the Word. And sometimes the Word says, what you do out there in the world like that, it, that doesn't actually give allegiance to Jesus in its structure or its order or, or its language. Uh, and, and so the, the church then is, by its definition of what it is, different. And the only thing for this organization, for, for this people, that is sufficient to direct it and help it and order it, is God's Word. For every good, We're equipped for every good work through through the Word breathed out by God. Um, and so that 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 I think that's something to talk about one day. A book that comes to mind for that is "What Is the Mission of the Church," a book by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, uh, where they're actually working through uh, the ideas of social justice, shalom, and the Great Commission. That's their that's the byline, and they're trying to sift through. Well, what actually is the church's mission? What what is the church, and what's it supposed to be doing specifically? Another topic, another day.
0: Yeah, but 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 really, it's in, and it's very closely related to what we're, we're talking about now. And I was we, we were going through on Wednesday night, some probably years ago, um, the Exodus. And when you come to Exodus nineteen, and everyone there is gathered around Mount Sinai, and it's there. I think in Scripture, you know, in addition to God speaking at the very beginning of the Bible and creating the entire universe or all of the created order. This is really the first time after that maybe that you have his word yet again shaping people and where they're being uh, taught the word and corrected and they're realizing at Mount Sinai, we can't listen to the words that are being spoken or we'll die. And th- this, I think this forms the core, Exodus 19 forms the core of what the church is really doing in every Sunday morning gathering around the pulpit to hear the word preached or even just gathering together to hear the word sung, read, prayed, preached is essentially replicating what's happening at the base of yes. Sinai where the yeah. Lord speaks. And, I, and I'm not saying that that the pastor is God by no means, but that we're yeah, let the word. Let's clarify yeah, yeah. that. We're we're reading the word. We're literally reading the exact words that are written on the page to the congregation, and then, like Ezra and Nehemiah, we're giving a sense of what is. In the text, by actually taking the words themselves and explaining to the people what they mean, um, in and in, in a similar sense—not that we're Moses or anything like that—but in a similar sense of conveying the words of God to the people as Moses does at Mount Sinai, yeah. That we're 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 giving those words because we're recognizing that it's only the Word of God that creates. God created at the beginning in Genesis mm-hmm. one. God is creating and calling out his people in Exodus 19. He again in the New Testament creates through his word new creation, uh, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. So these people that are coming, that are that are even that are currently unbelieving, and are hearing the word preached, that is how God creates His people. It's through His words. And so, I th- you know, I think we're, we've been talking about organization of church, and we've been talking mm-hmm. about all these temptations that we have as pastors. But there is a much greater temptation, I think, on the whole for churches across the board to take. Their, the sermon and make it really intensely practical and overly mm-hmm. practical to a degree mm-hmm. that you're deviating from what the text is actually saying. As an mm-hmm. example of that, I've heard preach before, um, you know, out, out, many sermons, but but out of uh, out of like Acts, where um, where a person uh, where I, I can't remember who it is to either Festus maybe or Felix. Um, postpones Paul's trial and the sermon was on procrastination. But, but that isn't what Luke is actually saying there, and that's not how that text is actually being used. That's not why that story is included in the book of Acts. And our job as pastors is to get down to what is it that Luke is doing with what he's saying here, and why is it he's telling this story instead of maybe some other story about Paul's many many trials and tribulations on his way to Rome. And so once we get to the core of that and deliver that to the people, that is the word of God shaping and cultivating uh, the hearts. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But go ahead.
1: No, um, I was trying to cut you off. Um, there, I. It sounds like you are saying if you are not going to preach the word and the point of the text, and you are only gonna, if the word only gets used as uh, antidotal, and uh, you are not actually preaching what that text is actually trying to tell the reader, you may as well use Reader's Digest. You may as well preach from the opinion column right. in the newspaper. Because right. the authority is the word itself preached, and clarified for the people. We're we're mostly trying to get out of the way, as preachers, with with our words. We're trying to make the word as as clear as possible and proclaim it, and uh, help our people feel it and, and understand it.
0: And I, um, and I know I've,
1: we, I've used. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say this. There's a moment in our our church every Sunday in our order of service that I think is underappreciated. If you're in my church, listen, act accordingly. A moment in our church that's, I I think, almost my favorite moment. How can you have a favorite when there's singing and and preaching and reading? They're all my favorite. But one that I love every week and look forward to, We, we call it the call to worship, but it's just one to four verses read slowly at the beginning of the service. So there, are, there is a call to, hey, would you stand with me? And, uh, and here's the passage, the reference. That's about it. Usually there is no, um, no explanation, no introduction to the text. Just here's, st- please stand for the call to worship, Psalm 114.9, whatever it is, and then just read it. So that aside from the brief introduction, the first thing in our service is just God's Word quoted and read aloud. And it, it, it is intentionally a breaking through your week and a breaking through your morning and a breaking through you guys talking out in a foyer, a breaking through all that so that God's voice is spoken and heard here first thing we do mm-hmm. and it's like it's like a little it's like a little creation cycle again god's mm-hmm. word is going to do something god's word is what has authority here god's word is what we need to pierce our souls and pierce through us mm-hmm. i i love it i, mm-hmm. I love it and mm-hmm. we're like every church not everybody shows up on time mm-hmm. and and they they miss that moment i love that moment it means so much to me. Mm. So you and I've been friends for a long time. We've finished each other's sentences before, mm-hmm. in kind of a bromance kind of way. <laughs> I think you could say that. We were talking about a book this morning. Just don't give
0: us. Just don't give us one of those United names, please.
1: Oh gosh, please no. Oh no, Brangelina. So we were talking about a book, and we have the old version. We're looking at the old version by Lehman Reverberation, and. You said you had a, a, a paragraph in there underlined, and I said, oh, I've got some stuff underlined, too. And then it turns out what I have underlined is the paragraph before what you had underlined. Mm-hmm. We are so dorky. I'm, I mean, to, <laughs> a, to use that word, to bring this up, I feel pretty corny. But here we are. I think this is helpful. I'm going to read mine first. This is Jonathan Lehman in a book called Reverberation. It's been redone and I can't, the new one you said is Word Centered Church, right?
0: Word Centered Church, yeah. Which is the one I have is Word Centered Church.
1: Okay. So he I've got the old version cuz it's longer and thicker and uh you know me. I I love wow. It um, looks more
0: impressive on the bookshelf for sure. Oh, definitely.
1: Definitely. I mean, you're you have the child's version, that's fine. Yeah. Um It's got pictures. <laughs> <laughs> it's, got, it's got pictures. Oh, man. So this is Hel- this isn't a chapter called The Word Acts. I just think it's a helpful sentence, or a couple sentences. We need a theology of the buzz because what I'm contending in this book is a faith proposition. Trusting God's Word to build our churches is an act of faith. Faith in God faith in his word and such faith is not natural even for the Christian it is supernatural God must give it it's I I think it's so simple and clear Uh, God's Word is the creating thing God's Word is the acting thing and to believe that is to have faith in God like like God creating a people out of nowhere uh, whether it's Adam or Israel, like God making a covenant and creating children when it was impossible to cre- create children in Abraham. Or even Eve, who said, I've gotten a child by the, uh, by the Lord's help. Um, that we believe God's Word creates things and it does things. Um, that, 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 that's freeing. That When I go to the pulpit, and that's in my brain and in my chest, I feel free. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I All the weight's lifted off me if I can yeah. just get out
0: of the way, yep. right? Let the Word yeah, do bre- the work. It does not depend on you. You, you are a vessel, and you deliver yeah. the
1: words that God has put on, on the page. Yeah, it depends on us in the sense that it's our job to be faithful, and it is on our shoulders sure. to be accurate and not lie, speak the truth and uh, not be funny just for the sake of having comedy hour up there. Um, that is on our shoulders. But the effect of what the word does, we can't add to it. To create his people,
0: to convict his people, to encourage his people, to discipline his people. It's not on you. You no. deliver did you his just word. Read the, did you just read the it.
1: chapter titles for Lehman's book? Isn't that kind yeah, of how it, he
0: works through it? That's pretty much how he... It's uh, so part. It's three parts. Part one is the word. The word acts. The word invites and divides. The word frees. The word gathers. Part two is the sermon. It exposes. It announces. It confronts. Part three is the church. They sing. They pray. They disciple, scatter, and um, you know, and evangelize. So and evi- invites basically is what he says. Uh-huh. So. It's a, you know, it's just a helpful reminder of what the word does. And I I think the the passage that I underlined right after what you underlined um, is sort of speaking to how we opened this whole thing, this discussion. He says, The old man in each of us, to use Paul's language, continually tempts us to build or center our churches on other things, things we can see and measure. We want to rely on marketing research, personal charisma, good music, or other natural devices. I'm not saying that natural devices are bad per se, but if we're relying upon them, there's no difference between us and the world. God means to challenge us right there or right here. Is not my word like fire? He would say to us. And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Jeremiah 23, 29. That's why I was not surprised to read a recent hmm. email in which a member of my church reported I was hmm. broken to pieces by the end of Sunday's sermon, and he was praising God. Hmm. Does the work?
1: <sighs> so good. It is. It's so good, and I I might have said this before. One of my favorite passages that encourages me in ministry is Paul in the first. Thessalonians 2.13 where he says we thank God for this and that when you heard the word of God you recognize it for what it is uh, the word of God and not the work of man who is at work in you who believe and if you're that that's my great joy when you preach the word and someone comes up to you and says man I'm broken over this that encouraged me that lit me on fire that convicted me you, you immediately go man isn't God's word awesome yeah
0: I, I, and I, and I it's so good. What an encouragement. And, I, and I, I don't know, you know, normally we don't sort of break the fourth wall and talk to any kind of audience that might be listening or, you know, whatever. But I can't help but think of like just a, a pastor out in the middle of nowhere or mm-hmm. that seems to be disconnected from a lot of people that's really discouraged about things that are going on in his church. And at any one point that could be any of us. Uh, and that has been any of us. Mm-hmm. And you know the encouragement to him is to just continue to be faithful to the Word and continue to preach it. And ultimately, what you want to be accountable for and what you want to be able to to validate or to be validated about you on Judgment Day is that you faithfully preach the Word of God every week to your people. Whether it was two or a hundred and two, you faithfully preached
1: every single week. Which is why I call you every week. It's not to get uh, DC Talk quotes because right. I can't trust you for that. It's <laughs> because <laughs> it's because sharing... Jars of Clay was my jam. Sh- oh, oh, ooh, good one, Flood. Yeah, I like it. You know,
0: the original uh. Jars of Clay album is hard to beat. All right. Yeah. The true. original true. Jars of Clay, just called Jars of Clay. That yeah. one's that one's hard to beat. It'll stand the test of time. You know, I'm my just a boy on a, a string. Mhm. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. What were you going to say? Tear but my world apart right here. Th-
1: <laughs> I think I think sometimes that that's a lot of the ministry and discipleship and the fellowship in the church is the the word helps us more together and when, when I go through the word with others staff meeting um, this phone call our life group my, my wife it, it it always the calls always reignite um, more when I'm with other people um, maybe not m- always more than by myself sometimes I'm alone and I'm like good grief I, I can't keep this in um, but doing that with others is such a such a big in- encouragement Mm. Yes, and and I'll say this is a good transition to get to my text I was reading for my sermon text this week and it takes us back to Numbers and it's a passage I hadn't read in a while I knew that this passage from the Old Testament was in this passage in Revelation um, but I didn't have a good grip on it so I knew I was going to have to be back in it, reading it, and rereading it, and um, even just reading it this morning uh, while my wife was having breakfast with another uh, member of our church, and I was home uh, trying to contain the chaos that is four children and a dog. My my new line, by the way, I have four above-average children and one below-average dog. That's our house. (laughs) So, yeah. So home reading this morning. Reading this numbers. This dog you were
0: so proud of when you first got this dog, though. <laughs> I'll say, you. I love Ranger this dog, was...
1: dude. Ranger yeah. has gone. We don't have time for this, but he's gone from day one. That dog will never come into the house. To well, if you're going to sleep in our bed, get on Colette's side, right? <laughs> that that's kind of where we are. So, um, but yeah, just reading through numbers. And in my text, it's uh, Balaam and the king Balak uh, who are going back and forth for several chapters in Numbers, and then the passage that Revelation mentions. And I am encouraged. I'm seeing God's word, and it's having an encouraging effect on me. I had a long day yesterday. Um, Four or five. Uh, I wouldn't call them all counseling, but pastoral ministry conversation, friendship conversations, some counseling, um, you know, just that mixture of uh, all day. We had some stuff stolen from our church uh, yesterday. We had some friends get some really bad news about cancer yesterday, all all kinds of things. And in my own self, reading God's Word in Numbers this morning, uh, it's just encouraging. So uh... it's so good my text is the letter to pergamum in uh... the last part of revelation chapter two and the main gist of it is even more than the church before Smyrna last week you've endured even during the time when antipas uh... was killed for his faith and you have you remained faithful yet you're allowing some compromise to slip into the church uh, by way of accepting some of these other false teachings over here. And my passage references Balaam and Balak. And in, uh, the passage that it references is in Numbers, going back to 21 or 22. Um, Balaam, if I remember correctly, is a, a prophet of Israel, seems to know the Lord. The Lord speaks to him. And uh, I'm going to give you the quickest rundown I can here. Uh, the king Balak sees Israel coming out, positioned between Jericho and um, uh, the, Jordan, uh, the Jordan. And Balak sees them as a threat. He calls Balaam, the prophet, and says, I want you to curse this people. Call out a curse on this people, basically so that they won't do to us like they did to the Egyptians. And three times, uh, Balaam says, I will only come and talk to you if I can say whatever the Lord says. Balaam comes three times and says God's word, which is three times, I'm not going to curse them. That's my people. I'm actually going to bless them, which ticks Balak off. You know, you won't curse this people who's a threat to us. So he sends Balaam away. No reward for Balaam. No payment for Balaam uh, because he didn't curse the people. But then in uh, in Numbers we have this moment when uh, it, it seems like Israel is safe and Israel is good, and they they kind of survived being cursed, right? They they they're saved from their enemies. By, by God's Word, but then right after that comes this little passage where it says what they did was they connected themselves themselves to the worship of Baal. They were protected from their enemies, but they gave themselves, they yoked themselves, it says in the ESV, to Baal of Peor. And when Jesus references this passage to the church in Pergamum. That's what he's saying about them. Antipas was actually killed for his faith, but and you guys stayed faithful. But here's the problem: you guys are actually giving yourself to um, uh, giving yourself to sexual immorality, giving yourself to worldly teaching, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and um, you're being unfaithful. And Balaam, who was so helpful to them, numbers 31, is it numbers 31? Numbers 31 actually says, it was on Balaam's advice that the people act treacherously against the Lord at Peor, and they began to worship idols uh, there. So God's, Jesus is warning the church saying, it's one thing to remain faithful unto death, which is the warning in the last passage, but re- remaining faithful unto death. But compromising uh, some doctrines uh, is is going to be costly. In fact, Jesus, who has the two edged sword in his mouth, will come uh, and and care for you himself in that way. So, so it's is the,
0: is is the view here, or is the understanding that the people inside the church at Pergamum are enticing the people there to believe something different, or are they enticing them? To do something like uh, to you know actually practice sexual immorality or say this sin's not that big of a deal or is it is it that they're tempting them with a doctrine that is false?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, so two, I've heard two pastors mention this. Vodibacham mentioned this in his sermon on Thyatira. Juan Sanchez mentions this in his commentary on on this. Letter uh, to Pergamum, and Juan mentions it in a way that seems to be applicable to all the churches, all seven of the churches. That in every city there is a guild, a a network, a um, oh, what, what's the word for like the the workers who get together and union? A, yeah, it's basically it's like a union, a workers' union, except in each city. There would be a a workers' union around temples and around worship to pagan gods. And you would have a hard time buying and selling bread in the market. You would have a harder time doing business and trade on the coast if you weren't in the guild. But to be in the guild meant proceeds, devotion, some meetings would include worship. To these deities, or to these to these idols, and what he says in in this passage, I have this against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, which is the inciting to worship idols, who taught Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you're actually in because you begin to believe something different, even though you survived death over here. You begin to believe something different over here. You begin to give in to the guild. You begin to compromise your your doctrines. In in the New Testament, I mean for our context today, I think that would be things like I still believe that Jesus is born of the flesh, still think Jesus rose from the dead, but I start to get fuzzy on what is a man and what is a woman. I start to get mm-hmm. fuzzy on LGBTQ issues. I start to get fuzzy and, and give in to what the world says about some things so that I can be accepted by the world and kind of live in the church. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you, you have to do that to go to work. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do that. I mean, that, that's a conversation I've had with members recently was, uh, so what do I do at work when I'm forced to uh, refer to people are uh, forced to do services like the cake baker whatever that are in that are contradiction to what i think is an, it, it, to me it's an act of worship yeah to refer to <laughs> men and a d- women
0: uh, I mean, not not to a degree. This is literally happening at places I know of with people I know of working at those yeah. places where they're having yeah. to go undergo every year this kind of uh, you know training. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to say it, but doctr- mm-hmm. doctrinal training, and yeah. they're having to sign off on the doctrine of you know whatever it is, the place of employment, and it's the the what they're having to click on the terms and conditions basically is you agree with what's been taught here Mm -hmm. which is you know is is completely the opposite antithetical to what the bible is actually depicting of either a man and a woman or Mm -hmm. whatever and Mm -hmm. um and so this is a very real thing that's coming to people even now in america where there is no uh, free, even freedom of religion that we're so common, so commonly you know trumpeting, places mm-hmm. of employment are going nah, and forcing people to sign off on these. So it's a very real thing that's sort of hitting we can totally relate to, right yeah, now. Yeah,
1: and, and the thing is that it's gonna be it's gonna be sneaky. I think it will be in terms of. Uh, Man, I saw a quote this morning. I wish I could remember it or find it quickly. Uh, But it will be in terms of equality. Not that equality is bad, um, but it will be co-opted to become something else in terms of safety, in terms of uh, health. In terms of community, yeah. it will be for these things. They're not going to come out and say well, the last thing we want is Christians uh, believing right. those things and telling people that these things are wrong. It's, right. it's going to be it, it's going to be about creating safe places. I mean, I,
0: you back, know, the same they did this. They did this back then too. They, they Christians were called atheists. Christians were called incestuous because they married their brother or sister. You know, meaning meaning their uh, their spiritual brother or sister, their brother mm-hmm. in the Lord their sister in the Lord. They married them, and so they were incestuous. Uh, they considered them um, cannibals because they ate the body and blood, uh, ate the body and drank the blood of Christ, mm-hmm. and so they mm-hmm. they were considered yeah. all kinds of things that we would think of as abhorrent: an atheist, an incestuous, uh, a, yeah. a cannibal. That's crazy. And so it's taking all these terms and and. Placing them on the community of faith and saying, that's what you are, when that's not yeah. an accurate understanding or representation of what we actually yeah. believe or do. You know, but you're I, held I, think, to.
1: I think as an example, Christian radio is an easy soapbox to get on, so I don't want to – just use this as an example, but when – Christian radio, and, and along with that, churches and summer camps and books boil down the idea of Christianity to paying it forward at Starbucks and buying someone's coffee in line and doing oh, random man, acts man. of kindness, and that, and we boil down Christianity to kind of niceness, we actually teach the church that the world's idea of love and kindness is the same as the church. Or that ours is like theirs. And so when we go to businesses and they say, well, that's not nice, that's not kind, that's not loving, well, we've been hearing the same thing. And so we're like, well, yeah, I wouldn't want to hurt any, anyone's feelings, uh, so I'll, I'll just tune down or silence anything uh, that would be contrary to, to kindness. Um, because, of course, kindness is a, is a virtue of Christ, and we and we pursue that. That's, it's tricky uh, like that. And, and what Revelation is actually getting at, I think, in this section, is that's the place where if we're being invited into the worship of the world, and that that's kind of what it means to join the guild, Jesus is not happy about that. And that, that's not worship, and, and that's not faithfulness. In fact, the words of Jesus is, Repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And he says this to the church, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this is interesting. I think it's a, a thematic connection. I don't think it's an actual quotation connection or anything like that. But when um, in the passages preceding Uh, balaam inciting israel into idolatry worship we've got that passage where balaam's riding his donkey he's on his way to see balak and balak wants him to pronounce curses on israel uh, but balaam has committed i will only speak what the lord tells me on the way he confronts you know he's on the donkey the donkey sees this angel the donkey moves the donkey moves and he keeps wondering what's wrong with his donkey right but the donkey is the only one seeing the angel right and then when the donkey speaks to balaam and says hey we've been friends our whole life why are you hitting me now why are you messing me up here and he doesn't miss a beat
0: either he's
1: like yeah i'll just go with it (laughs) yeah he just he just talks to the donkey because you know that's normal (laughs) and balaam actually says if i had a sword right now i would kill this i would kill you talking to his donkey About that time, the angel appears, where um, where Balaam can see him, and the angel says to to let me see if I can find. I should probably read it, but in essence, the angel says to Balaam himself, "If I had a sword, I would kill you." Mm. And uh, he doesn't. Balaam goes along, but we have this. We have this. I think some maybe a thematic connection that Jesus is saying. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to war against the nations, and I'm going to war against Babylon and Satan. But if you're going to join in worship with them, the sword that's coming out, my, out of my mouth, my word, is going to come make war against you. Mm. And the enemy, then, is not them out there, right? It's, will we tolerate worship of idols in here? And if not, Jesus is looking at us, this lampstand, and going, we need to prune. Yeah. We need to fix that. Man, it is... This
0: it, is sort of a common thing that runs through Scripture, and you see it frequently in the Old Testament, where the Jews are associated with the beast, not with the people of God.
1: Oh, And, yeah. you yeah. know,
0: here here is the church at Pergamum, and Jesus is sort of flipping it on them, going, you think you're my people, but mm-hmm. you have no idea how closely you are associated with the beast of Babylon, Mm-hmm. Right now,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and and so you have this sharp, two-edged sword at the beginning, this sword that comes against them out of his mouth. Again, we're coming mm-hmm. back to that same theme that we even started this with of the his word. I would, assume, mm-hmm. which I would assume is what that means. Absolutely, his, Absolutely. his word coming against them, which has the power yep. to create
1: and to judge, to, to divide, to, to divide, pierce, yeah. to kill. Yeah. I mean to bring to life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it, it's a
0: lot. You know, this there's this there's this thing this thing that I've been really intrigued by, and, and I think is sort of a repeated undercurrent throughout uh, a lot of these churches in Revelation is you've got this reference to Antipas who was obviously faithful, and they say, did not deny my faith, or did not deny faith in Mm -hmm. me, I assume is what that Mm -hmm. means, but he he held fast to it, and they killed him for it. it, which apparently is what happened, and so then he, he is going down here and talking to a church who is tempted mm-hmm. to wander from the truth because mm-hmm. they don't want to face, I mean, essentially, because they don't want to face a fate similar mm-hmm. to what Antipas faced. Mm-hmm. And I've always been intrigued by this because it seems as though the question that's coming from the church to Jesus, if they could respond to Jesus, it's like they would be asking him, do you just want us to starve to death? How do you, do you want us to, mm-hmm. I mean we can't put bread on the table. Do you want us to starve to death? And it seems yeah. that Jesus' answer to all of them is, "Yes. If the choice is starving to death or denying my word and denying faith in me, then yes, starve to death." Yeah. And that's that's Absolutely. chilling.
1: Yeah. And th- in fact, that was the first time I heard this connected like that was Bakum's sermon on Thyatira. And how mm. buying and selling food would become a problem, mm. and Jesus has answered to them. That, and one of the hard things about this week is going to be there's multiple layers of Old Testament narrative sections that Jesus recalls, and one of them is the hidden manna, and it's it's like Jesus is saying, you you can you're going to have to lose this bread, but I'll give you this bread, I'll give you this manna, the manna of heaven. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, it's exactly right. It and it creates a question that we thought we 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 didn't even think was going to be a face of persecution, which is not be quiet or go to jail, which is true in Smyrna last week, but be quiet or you can't eat bread. Yeah. I mean, yeah. be quiet or you can't go to work here. Yeah. Be quiet or you can't get government funding. Yeah. Be be quiet or. Uh, your, your, your taxes might be different. You know, I don't know. These, these things are not unfeasible, and they've already happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, it yeah, it, it's, uh, man, it's it's tough. Um, yeah. I'm excited about it. Um, the, yeah, the,
0: it's there are certainly, as we've seen with the church last week, there are certainly churches that face outright overt, shut up or we're going to kill you persecution. But there's also ideological persecution that can, turned so ugly that it—it's basically you committing suicide slowly. You know, you—you you refuse your ability to provide for your own family because of the doctrine that you hold, and you hold a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, or perhaps you hold to, to uh, what's now becoming called traditional marriage. Um, you know, uh, uh, between a, a husband and a wife. And you hold these doctrines to be true and to be created and ordained by God. And that forces you to forego bread being put on the table. And it, it's, it's basically like you essentially committing suicide. You know, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, am I, am I, am I not supposed to provide for my family? And, and Jesus is here reiterating it. Under those circumstances, yes, you're to
1: forego uh, supporting yeah, it, your family. Yeah, it reminds me of the case where... Uh, there's multiple cases right now uh, that have happened and are gone going. One of them is the name, uh, I think it's James Younger here in Texas. Uh, the mom wants him to, he's a boy, the mom wants him to transition to be a girl, and there's a center in Dallas where she wants to take him and have that done. The father, the mother and father are separated. The father doesn't want to do that, thinks that's harm to the boy. So he's fighting legally in, in battle, or uh, fighting legal battle in court to say, no, that. That's not good we should not do that he should not be forced to do that by his mom he shouldn't even be allowed to do that even if he wanted to uh, have this kind of thing uh, done to him at, at his age um, another one comes to mind I don't remember the the church um, uh, the, the church denomination or whatever who who was a part of this uh, I'm not even sure that I would agree with it but in terms of religious liberty uh, there was a case where uh, a child, Needed a heart transplant or a kidney transplant or something like that, and the family um, didn't want to have the procedure for religious purposes. And it, there's some there's some hard questions there. I'm I'm not sure exactly where I would draw the line on what is you know abuse to a child while withhold it for withholding care. Right. I'm not going to say that I've got that line determined in my mind right now but that idea of if y- y- religious practice and freedom is not a reason uh to do business like this or have a medical decision made like this uh or to have a child cared for like this uh and in fact it's that's opposed um it, it's it, we're we're there it's not yeah. even a what if or when it is happening and uh, we're in the middle of it. And I, one, one of the things I told our church on Sunday was like, we, we know that we're already there when we are already. I mean, this is the most, one of the most common uh, conversations I've had with church members in 10 years here and others. How do I know what's okay to say at work? How do I know when I'm talking about evangelism, I want to evangelize. I'm burdened to do that. But how do I talk to people at work? Because I'm pretty sure that um, it's a very likely possibility that if I have a conversation about the gospel with someone at work, on work premises, maybe even in the lunchroom when we're off work, that that's going to become a thing. I'm going to be in the HR office, and I'm going to have to go down that road. And is it worth it? Should I say that? And I'm like, the fact that we're already there the fact that we're thinking that way tells us we're already there. right? That That's that's where we're living. You think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally
0: think that's a fair application of the text. I mean, we're, we're bringing up situations, and, and I think a lot of these letters, they're so commonly preached, obviously, and they're of such great concern to us. You know, we, we are continually going back to the letters of the seven churches of Revelation, and... Part of that is because they're so applicable to today's church. It's like 2,000 years hasn't passed. It's like they're written to us right now. And we're struggling right now with answers to some of these questions. And it's when you read these letters and you understand them in their context and you understand what's being said, you realize uh, nothing's changed. We're in the same situation as these churches in, um, you know, in Asia Minor, and they're dealing with some of the same things these trade guilds are dealing with some of these same things that are immediately applicable to today's church and i think so often we you know think we're in a new situation this has never been done before oh my goodness what do we do about about this and ah, 2000 years ago these churches were dealing with the same thing and the answer that jesus gave was just as uncomfortable as the answer we are going to have to deal with now you know and and no i guarantee you nobody's going to want to hear yeah starve to death over your faith everybody's going to want to hear uh oh, it's okay it's okay try to get around it you know compromise here compromise there and and Jesus gives no room for compromise on these issues they're central to the faith then that's I don't know if that's comforting or if it's discouraging but you know yeah. it is challenging I am in Matthew 24 starting in verse 36, going all the way to the end of the chapter. And here we've got uh, Jesus has been laying out and answering their question. He's already talked about at the beginning of 24 that the temple, no stone is going to be left unturned on the temple. And that makes the disciples nervous. They, obviously, they are concerned. They ask questions about uh, what, when all this is going to happen and how they understand it. And so they ask him the question in verse 3, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus begins his answer in verse 4, and I've made the argument over the past two weeks to our church that the answer from verses 4 to 35 all concern the destruction of the temple, which is the first part of their question, when will these things be? And it's in verse 36 that he turns to answer the second part of their question, his coming into the end of the age. And you know that because, for several reasons, but one is because in verse 36, the very beginning, the first word is but. And it is a contrastive turn in the in the passage, I've been talking about this, but now I'm talking about that. Second reason that you know is, is, a, is a, this is a change to answer the second part of the question is because he switches from. Talking about the plural of those days, like you see in verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, he switches to concern that day, a specific moment. And the other reason that you know this is a change is because he goes from in the previous passage, verses 4 to 35, to from talking about specific events that you need to watch and that signal that. The destruction of the temple is coming near, to talking in verse thirty six and following about no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son of nor the son, but the father only. Um, so he, so Jesus switches in thirty six to talking about a day, a specific day that he doesn't even know the signs that are going to be pointing that. That's coming. In fact, he goes on to say that there aren't going to be any signs for that day. There's not going to be one sign that you're going to be able to point to because he goes on to give an analogy of, of Noah and several other things that we'll talk about probably here in a minute. But yeah, um, yeah, that, we that all that <laughs> that all of those things that he's talking about are uh, are kind of giving the idea that things are just going to be pretty normal and then all of a sudden it's going to happen. And so the, yeah, out of nowhere it's going to happen. And so it's not going to be like versus 4 to 35 where you're going to have signs and you're going to know exactly when to run for the hills or whatever. In fact, there's not even a warning to run for the hills. That's that's not that's not what he's wanting them to do as a result of what he's telling them. So the from 36 and following, none of that fits the pattern of 4 to 35. It's completely different. And all the signs point to he's answering two different questions, which if you go back to verse 3, it seems they have asked two different questions. And so um, basically here we're talking about the second coming of Christ and what the disciple of Jesus is really to do because his coming is uh, – because he's going to return in, in light of his return. Yes,
1: yeah, so, so good. Um, but is there anything – that tells us when the rapture is going to happen. <laughs> like in this passage. Uh, yeah, this is a you know this is one of come those... on man. <laughs> There's a is... DC Talk song. Yeah, about this two men walking thi- up a hill. That's a That's
0: a uh, that's actually not a DC Talk song, right? Isn't that a isn't that a really they sing, old song? They, co- they cover it. They do. Yeah, they do. Coming, we're coming back full circle here. That DC Talk <laughs> comes back into my passage. <laughs> totally planned. Um, you know, uh, uh, there is that song that comes to mind, I Wish We've All Been Ready.
1: That's it. That's the song.
0: Yeah. So, Uh,
1: short short version, uh, this gets quoted as the moment when people are going to disappear. Yeah. Is that the case or no or why? Yeah. Um, So, in verse 37,
0: and one of the reasons that people – presume about this text that he's talking about being, uh, the, the rapture here being snatched away and things like that. I don't take that position on this passage, uh, for a number of reasons, but most of them are found right in the text itself. He says in verse 37, so, so let me read the passage that, that people kind of take to be the rapture. He says, um, uh, he says, "So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field; one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill; one will be taken and one left." And as as far as I know, this is probably something that undergirds, um, you know, stuff like the Left Behind series and things like that, where they just disappear off a plane and planes are falling down out of the sky and things like that. And I don't take that position on here because I think the evidence in the text points contrary to that. So look at verse 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 37, he says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. So he set this as a, he's used a simile here in this passage. There's one simile and kind of two parables, if you want to think about it that way, but this would be the simile, the day, the coming of the son of man, the second coming, as it were, is going to be like the days of Noah. So what, how is it going to be like the days of Noah? Well, he goes on to answer that in 38, as in the days of Noah, the, before the flood, everyone, he says, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So you have two different people, groups of people, or if you want to say it that way, that he's referring to in 28. The first is they, and then the second is Noah. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. That wasn't the action of Noah. Noah was preparing the ark and entered the ark with his family. They were unaware when the flood came. So that is all the people outside the ark were unaware until the flood came. Noah, how on the other hand, was not unaware he was in the ark and swept them all away, which would be the people outside the ark. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So when we get to 40, the two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left It is apparent that the one left is parallel to Noah, and the one taken is parallel to the people outside the ark who are swept away into judgment. And further solidifying that understanding of the two people that he's referring to is a couple of things. First, he uh, is at the very end of this whole passage when he gets down into 50 and 51, he says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect. So we're still talking about the return here, catching people unaware. In this case, it's a lazy servant who said, hey, my master's gone for a long time. It's he, Who knows when he'll be back? Who cares? It's going to be forever. And so he doesn't do any work, and he does all kinds of terrible things. And the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so it's apparent that, the, that what Jesus is warning against, and this would be the second reason, so first is that, I, that I, first, one of the first reasons I think that is because down here in 50 and 51, but the second reason that I, uh, I, I think that is that Jesus is warning the disciples that they must be ready so that they're not caught up in judgment they must be more like Noah and not like the people outside the ark. They must be like the servant that works and not like the one that just sloughs off because I'm going to come in an hour you do not expect, that you do not know, I'm not going to tell you when that is because I don't even know, the Father only knows, and I don't want you to be caught off guard and be swept away into hell. And into judgment. And so, all the warnings of the passage, the point of the passage, the thrust of the passage, all of it is pointing to not a rapture of taking away people into heaven, but you, the disciple, do not want to be left unprepared because you will be swept away into judgment. And so, the one taken, I I, I think, in this passage points to one taken and thrown into hell. Hmm where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is what Jesus mm-hmm. has warned so many times in the book of Matthew anyway.
1: Yeah, because there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a theme in those passages that's in verse 50, uh, where Jesus is mostly warning you not, uh, about what you just said. The one who is disobedient, the one who is not keeping faith, not looking for his return, mm-hmm. uh, be, be warned about what's going to happen to that one. Right. I, that's super helpful because then you have a whole passage that seems to be saying one thing versus, hey, where's that passage about two people and one getting taken away? Oh, it's right there. Well, clearly that's what's you know something like that's gonna happen when even even if even if you could get there in this text, it has to be second, third, maybe fourth implication it, at best, that it's not the main. Point of the pa- it's not Jesus's use of that in the, in this passage. You have to say something else. I have, a, mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Sure. The I mean, how do you just how do you preach verse fifty one, both in application and what do you do with words like these, where uh, Jesus is saying as as example uh, the the wise servant uh, who has a master over his household. He's says his master's delayed. He starts getting drunk and beating his servants as if the master's never going to come home and check on him again. In verse fifty-one, I will cut him into pieces, speaking about the master of that household and the unfaithful servant. I'll cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm. How I do mean, I? This, preach is, it? this is an image. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because this is an image. Uh, let's let's just say it this way. I never saw this on a felt board in Sunday school when I was a kid. <laughs> right? Like, we, we didn't have a disembodied man up there going, Well, guys, we're going to do Matthew 24 today. All right? And we're, we're, yeah. So uh, how, how do you what, – what are you going to do with that? How do you handle that? Is it bad that I think it's a
0: shame that we don't have a disembodied felt board? Hey, listen, I,
1: I I think if we're going to do nativity scenes that we need to have Caesar in there and uh, <laughs> and have a, some different narrative, if we're going to have the whole narrative in there. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have David and Goliath. We have David laid on the ground. Where's the picture of David holding his head up? <laughs> Which, don't get me started, don't get me started the fact that Goliath's head's being cut off is one of the central events in 1 Samuel. Because that's what happened to King Dagon, and that's what happens to Saul at the end of the book. Yeah. But I digress. Hello, hello. What are you going to do with this passage?
0: Yeah. Uh, if I were... So, here's one reason why I think verse 51 is such an important verse and why it is important. I, and and yes, I think important to teach not only to the adults in the room, it's important to help your kids understand, too. we Fear so often. And, and I think, you know, there's some degree where you kind of perhaps your, your, your gospel presentation doesn't need to be all hellfire and brimstone. Okay. Uh, granted, I, I agree with that. But we have sometimes erred the other way of saying we're not going to talk about hell and eternal fire when Jesus is not so timid about it. I mean, read the Gospel this is of Je- Matthew. These are Jesus' words. Yeah. He comes back yeah. to this, this, this kind of idea. Uh, I mean, lots of times in the Gospel of Matthew or even just the Gospels itself, e- even in Revelation, you know, he comes back to this same idea. Look, Hell is a real place. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to go there. It'd be better to cut your hand off and go in without a hand to, to heaven than to yeah. just talks about cutting stuff things. up yeah. a lot. I yeah. mean, yeah. So like, so the the gospels themselves are are pretty uh, you know R rated, might say in that sense. And really, uh, they depict this just incredible image. But I think one of the reasons that it's so important for us to explain that to people, that what Jesus is saying here is that, hey, hell is a real place and you don't want to go there, is that it helps you to realize this is the most important thing in your life. If I told you that most of the world is walking into a buzzsaw of judgment and you might be there with them. And here's what I'm saying. You are going to die a gnarly and eternal death. All of a sudden, everything else in your life would pale by comparison to the consideration that I might go into a buzzsaw of judgment soon. yeah, And so Jesus' words here are meant to paint a stark reality so that you understand that this is the most important thing in your life. This is the most important consideration you can actually make is this right here, is how you respond to Jesus. Understand we're talking about eternity here. You cannot make a bigger decision than this right here. And he's Using those words of cutting them in pieces and throwing them with the hypocrites, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, to to help people, like
1: shock people into being awake and helping them. see. And he's not just using. He's not just using it as a mechanism in one sense. No. This yeah. is the reality, right? And he's he's yeah. And it's like when you go to the doctor and your doctor tells you you have cancer. I have a friend that found out they had cancer yesterday. Um, all of a sudden, your plans for the weekend don't matter, right? All of a sudden, who you know what we're do what we're going to eat for dinner tonight? In that argument, it doesn't matter. And yeah, you. So it's almost like woe to you if you would not preach this, right? The Jeremiah Watchman, uh, yeah, kind of thing. I, I, yeah. I mean, God forbid I
0: take these words here at the end and soften them to the congregation, so to yeah. so as to make them more palatable. I mean, I, I, for for me these are the words of Jesus and I need to present them as they are presented and the tone and the demeanor and the purpose for which they're presented. I need Mm -hmm. to shock the congregation awake and say, listen, if there's anything that you, that might cause you to consider where your life is currently and Mm -hmm. where it's headed, it should be these words of Jesus right here.
1: Yeah. And you can probably err on the other side where this becomes like a weapon in the pulpit, mm-hmm. uh, just to scare the fire out of you, just to get you to do something right now. Right. You know, I got we have a member of our church who uh, came to Christ about ten years ago, and that was his testimony. I walked in aisle, and I got baptized when I was a kid because the guy was preaching about hell so hard. I just thought, I'll go down there and take care of this. But there was no conversion. There's no faith in Christ. No understanding of. Uh, Jesus dying on the cross for sins and raising from the dead, you know, and and you know it's a boy, maybe he misheard, I don't know, but you could use it like that. Right? Where this is only a, only about instigating fear for the sake of giving getting an outcome immediately and, and and not actually pointing to Christ and preaching the point of the text, which is the fact that you don't know when he's coming. It doesn't get more severe than this right, and this this is the severity and yeah. if you think you can just play around with your life thinking the master's not coming, yeah uh, actually if he shows up, uh, beware yeah
0: That's hard. I think I think not only does it get to the heartbeat of the it it actually kind of nicely closes the text uh, that I'm going to be preaching this week, but it sort of underscores what my you know main impetus or what I feel like is the main point and then the, the, mm-hmm. what I'm going to be driving home to the audience as a result of the main point. I think I think what the 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 main thrust of what Jesus is is trying to do here in 36 to 51 and really Matthew trying to do through the words of Jesus as well to his own, readers is mm-hmm. helping the disciple of Jesus to understand that they must maintain a constant state of readiness for his return. Mm-hmm. You must continue to be ready. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, you you must resist the urge to fall asleep. Um, here in uh, which which is nice for a preacher to preach to a Baptist congregation. You know, you don't fall asleep during the during, <laughs> during the sermon.
1: Well, it, and isn't it, isn't Jesus basically saying too that like don't interpret uh, what to you is a delay in time as an excuse to be uh, to, to disbelieve right or live. Uh, Disbelief. Well, yeah, and this is Uh, this is you don't you don't know when he's
0: coming. This is kind of what uh, he gets to in just a minute. Is he's about to break into a couple of parables. He he closes my passage with his first real kind of parable, the wise servant, the faithful and wise servant versus the you know lazy servant. Um, And then he's going to go to two more parables after this. And. All of them are about maintaining the constant state of readiness. So he, he'll eventually seek to kind of clarify what it means to actually stay ready. And it seems to be the mm-hmm. biggest push that he's making is that you maintain faithfulness in your confession and you maintain diligence in the works that he's left you to do which obviously at the end of the book of Matthew he's going to clarify for everybody which is to Mm. go into all the world making disciples baptizing them in Mm -hmm. the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to obey Mm -hmm. all that I've commanded you that's the work Mm -hmm. that I've left you here to do and so you're to Mm -hmm. maintain that and in the process you're also to maintain a constant confession of faith all the Uh way through the end right so kind of Dovetails even with your passage that you're preaching. Well, really, it kind of gets yeah. dovetails with the entire Bible, but um, yeah. that's that's sort of the the you know sort of the push that he's it's, making. It's like it all fits him. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that sort of main is the push that he's maintaining here is that you you must maintain faith. It's not literally to stay awake, obviously, um, you know, and, and things like that. It, it's it's meant to you're maintaining the faith that you believe the confession of faith. you're maintaining the work that I've left you here to do. And I think the danger, this kind of goes back to the whole rapture thing, the danger of thinking of it that way is that watch and be ready and those kinds of terms that he he uses would be interpreted then as to be ready for the rapture, watch for the rapture. And mm-hmm. so what mm-hmm. that leads to is a lot of people that are calendar counting, that are going to mountaintops, that are picking dates, that are looking for omega codes written throughout the Bible, that are trying mm-hmm. to identify certain days when he's going to return, which is contrary to everything he's telling you in this entire chapter is that on that day, you're not going to know and you cannot figure it out. There's nothing Mm -hmm. you can do to watch the signs, watch the European Union overseas, watch the Germany moving Mm -hmm. tanks to some border or something like that as to Mm -hmm. mean anything about his second coming. All of it is going to be totally unknown to you. And the reason we know that is because he says the son doesn't even know, the father only. And so all of that is antithetical to what he's actually telling you. And here's the kicker, is to count days on the calendar and to go to mountaintops and to look in the sky is actually being unready. It's being asleep it's not being ready because the time it takes you to count days and to go to mountaintops and to look into the sky are days that you're not doing what he's actually left you here to do, which is to make disciples and proclaim the gospel. So mm-hmm. and the end, in the process, by getting those days wrong and things like that, you're defaming the name of Christ. So in mm-hmm. actuality, when you think you're being ready for some rapture, you're actually falling asleep, which is what he's warning you mm-hmm. against. So it has this sort of, you know, it's a it's a, hmm. uh, a, a catch, I think, for people yeah. who are are interpreting it that way, and I think it's a real danger. You know, yeah, if we interpret it right in the context, I think it, it, it really means, hey, we're maintaining faith and we're doing constantly the work that He's left us here to do.
1: Yeah. And to be fair, there are uh, some of the pastors who are most dear to me uh, might preach this text that way or believe that this is talking about that. Um, or if not here, teach and preach the rapture from somewhere else. And I would disagree with that, but not not every pastor that preaches that would I just say, well, I would never go to that church. You know, if it was the only church on the moon and it was just me and him, I wouldn't go there. Um, Not not saying that, um, but it does mean what you just said is it it has implications on our Christian living and our relationship to christ it's mm-hmm. not just a mysterious doctrine about the end times that has no bearing on how we live mm-hmm. it actually it actually does we have to be careful about that yeah well brother i'm I'm actually eager to hear uh, this sermon uh eager to hear uh, what you say to the hypocrites and <laughs> Here's here, here's how here's how I'm going to take us out. Are you ready for this? I don't think you're yeah. ready for this. I, I'm probably not. I, what I would say is, if you're going to go preach this passage faithfully, and I'm going to preach my passage faithfully, you know what I would call that? What? Dedicated Christian talk. DC, DC talk. You with me? Are you you, you, try, you tracking?
0: is the silence deafening yet
1: <laughs> I thought your phone died <laughs>
0: that that's no that's, on, actually, that's actually that's actually the on. sound of utter disappointment
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh fair enough fair enough all oh, right well man weird. have a good day we'll talk to you soon
0: All right. Thanks for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you, and most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones Podcast.